Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of season 2 of Ignite the Flame Audio. For those of you who are new to all of this, I would encourage you to go back all the way to the first episode of season 1, otherwise the story is not going to make chronological sense that gets read to you. If you've already caught season 1 and you're new to season 2, be sure to head on back to episode 1 of season 2, just so you can get all caught up. For those of you who've stuck with us this entire time, first of all, you deserve a medal. Secondly, I hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. And by this point, you know how we operate. So just to break the episode down, basically we read a chapter to you, in this case being the seventh chapter. Then we go into a section known as the origin of ideas, where we talk about how that chapter came to be, the inspirations behind it. Then we go into tips of the trade, for those of you who are aspiring to be authors, just to give you those helpful hints to boost your authorial career. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get straight into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow Chapter 7 Through the flames we follow Awaken, Nightshade. You may slumber again. I simply wish to know your reason for my summons. She gathers herself to an upright position, tucking the sheets over her half-exposed body. Blackstreet know about your missing manifest, Scarcrow. They say it is someone from inside the constabulary. I'm sorry. Don't be. It was only a matter of time before Bloodsnitch placed operatives in these establishments. Will you pursue these leads? It may cost you your life. It has already cost the life of Angus Hard, and I will find who is responsible. Alas, I must take my leave for the day. It has been designed, and the doctor must come forth once again. All I ask is that you are careful. You know very well how Bloodsnitch operate. Indeed. All the more reason to follow them and prevent that which is coming. Nightshade gathers her covers and attempts to clothe herself in their folds and wrappings, concealing all beneath their fine black silk. She comes close forcing a fire in my heart to rage and soar as a phoenix. But I maintain control, for I was a gentleman, and I would not dishonor her in any way, lest the promise I had made to my faith be broken. I will take my leave, and you should get dressed. Your first appointment will be due soon, I would imagine. I lower my head in sorrow for her sake. Yes, you're right. But before you go, wish the good doctor luck for me, won't you? And take this, as a token of my affection. She leans toward my face and leaves a kiss upon what little lips I had left, wiping them with her handkerchief of black and green, almost resembling her hair. Nightshade. Yes, Scarcrow? I. Me too. She unveils herself behind a wall of bamboo, only exposing her shoulders with flowing locks of semi-curled hair in multiple layers thronged with green streaks. Her shoulders are lily-white with slender, smooth edges, her face somewhat hidden behind her fringe, with defined character and beauty, rivaling nature herself. Eyes of crystal blue and piercing white, enough to prevent war and bring nations to its knees with each stare. She turns away and begins to weep. In that moment, I feel it best to leave, for I had caused her enough pain just being there. I leave through the window and descend the gutter tube to the ground using the window sills as stability break of day, when the sun had yet to illuminate the streets, was the perfect time as constables would be tired, children still asleep and people barely working. This time I could slip away unnoticed, but for once 
I do not want to leave. Judy presses me on, and I return to the safety of my asylum, with no one to greet me but the newly appointed dead, awaiting my hand to grant them passage. I remove the mask, with minimal effort, as though not even to struggle and resist exposure, and proceed to place it in its resting place, before fashioning myself into the wares which were all accustomed to recognize me. I glance in the mirror and no longer see a solid reflection, but with half of my face still hidden behind the mask. Had I gone too far? Had I allowed far too much control? Or was it something else? I had yet to find out. My ravens continue to slumber, barely even twenty years of age, most of them. I keep them here under my watchful eye, providing them with a symbiotic relationship consisting of shelter, food, and health in exchange for secrecy and information. I would rather use what little I had to prevent their suffering than have twelve more dead to the streets of London, for that was a punishment I could no longer bear. It was enough to have my childhood burned by the harshness of this great city, lest it incur upon those helpless children. Positioning my top hat, I proceed to the first witness in Angus' murder, with Nightshade's last words repeating in the subconscious of my mind. The house is a grand white structure, with black timber frames as support, the windows with diamond patterns and polished edges, the roof one of thatch, and various insect life colonizing one home with another, the front entrance daunting with a large canopy, extending past the stairs, hiding each in shadow, and only revealing the base of what appeared to be a solid black oak door. A gothic household, if ever I saw one. I step to my position, raising my scarf to proceed, and no sooner do I knock than the door swings wide, and there, standing before me, is Mr. Sedgwick, a man of high class, with a well-groomed face and slicked back head of hair to one side. His cravat, a prominent red, with a pure white shirt and green-collared jacket resembling hunting gear, a monocle placed upon his right eye and waistcoat of grey definition, enhanced embroidery and golden pocket watch to match, green trousers and shoes to match that. This was a man who could overrule fashion sense with expense. I glanced past him, into his fine decorum of heads from great and exotic beasts spanning the empire, his carpets woven from India and brought here via the East India Trading Company, a company which had its mark across almost the entirety of his living room, grand and exquisite decoration with expert craftsmanship, wooden figures and paintings from a land which time had forgotten, ornate dishes and ashtrays made from whalebone, and fine china crockery, detailing the benefits of our empire to me afresh. Despite all this distraction, I had to remain vigilant, and proceed with the task at hand. After all, this man may be of class, but that did not excuse him of justice, at least not in my eyes. May I help you, doctor? Indeed you may, Mr. Sedgwick. My name is Dr. Lantern. I am conducting a police investigation into the murder of Angus Hard and was wondering where you were at the time of his death, exactly 12 p.m. the night before last. I was in bed, my dear fellow. A gentleman such as myself does not maintain such a desirable appeal by retiring to bed at such a late hour, full of bravado to bolster his looks toward me, as though to boast in his present flesh. I see. Well, how about before that? Let's say 10.30 p.m.? And bear in mind, Mr. Sedgwick, I have evidence placing you the scene of the crime. What evidence? Compose yourself, Mr. Sedgwick. I simply need to know why you were there, is all. <clears throat> well, 
Angus had invited myself and three others to dinner to discuss further movements for the company and our partnership with the East India Trading Company, which inevitably we were hoping to merge with. Then we proceeded to play a hand of cards, whilst enjoying a smoke and fellowship with one another. So you knew the deceased rather well? I should think so. We were partners in this business venture with the East India Trading Company. Could anyone from this company have meant him harm, do you think? Not that I would know. Although, the other gentleman, Mr. Biggs, was somewhat of a representative. I did not know him very well at all. What I do know is that he's an awful cheat when it comes to cards. Always having the right hand, if you know what I mean. Did you ever confront him for this? Goodness, no. I do the same myself. Though I would never admit it to Angus. The poor wretch. Mr. Sedgwick, how did Angus stand to gain financially from this endeavor? Thirty percent of the shares, Doctor. A large sum of money. And a place on the board with the trade committee. A large gain indeed. And yourself? After that night, I withdrew my place in the company. After all, I was not about to trade with a company with cheating at their heart, let alone partner with them. Don't you find that strange? How do you mean? Angus Hard murdered for taking a partnership that you had declined, despite being of a low financial standing. What could he possibly hope to invest? Craftsmanship, Doctor. You see, what Angus lacked in money, he made up for in worksmanship, designing mechanical wonders and devices which would impress the finest of inventors. Even William Murdoch would have been stunned, I would have gathered. But inventions do not allow for business, Mr. Sedgwick. On the contrary, Angus would construct them and sell them to the East India Trading Company for an exchange of the business venture, and a patent which he could not afford. So, Mr. Hard was somewhat reliant on the company to provide him with everything. Indeed. The poor soul had lost his money to his wretched wife some years before, and whenever he obtained more, he would lose it to his betters in cards. Betters such as yourself, Mr. Sedgwick. I don't mean to brag, Doctor. Now, if that will be all, I have a lot of work to do. I'm expected at a meeting in exactly one hour with the East India Trading Company. I thought you had decided to relinquish that position, Mr. Sedgwick. Death has a strange way of changing people's minds, Doctor. Now, if you'll excuse me. As he passes, he closes his door, locking double locking, and even triple locking it, such that it prevents any attempt at entry. Good day to you, Doctor. Tilting his hat and waltzing on with walking stick in hand, I proceed to search his residence, starting from the rear of his house. Finding no entry, I revert to other methods. Placing my bag upon the ground and removing a pair of lockpicking tools, which I had employed countless times, I insert them into the door and begin to turn and twist interlocking a single mechanism on the rear. How strange to have three mechanisms on the front and only one to the back, though I was soon to find that the reason for this was waiting for me just behind. As the door creeps open, something leaps onto me and grabs me by the arm. A dog, one of black and beige, with a very furry coat, long pointed snout and similar ears, its muzzle black with beige around its mane, and a tail as shaggy as its coat. Certainly a breed I was unfamiliar with, but definitely bred for this intended purpose. A guard dog, if you will. As it draws blood from my arm, it becomes imperative that I stop it, else it will kill me outright. I realize my gloves are still within my bag. I have forgotten to conceal them beside my mask, which, on this occasion, had proved useful. Reaching for the gauntlets, 
The dog sinks its teeth deeper and deeper into my arm, now grinding into the bone and tendons. I pull the gauntlets, my eyes retreating into the back of my skull, and press the vapor system directly at its nose. Somewhat deterred, it runs around and buries its face into the ground, attempting to remove the smell of cigarette smoke from its olfactory instruments. It comes at me again, teeth bared, and eyes wide open. As it leaps, it fails to see this time I was ready for its attack, and as I swerve to avoid its pounce, I pin it to its belly from the neck and administer a strong sedative. The dog yelps in fear and gently succumbs to a sleep state, with tongue resting in the end of its blood-stained maw. Triumphant, I proceed to gather my tools of doctoring and attempt to treat my wound, splashing iodine to burn any infection, stitching the wound to prevent further blood loss, and cleaning further with herbs and linen cloth to a degree that prevents further contamination. All I can do is hope that my wound not fester, as contracting a disease or bacterial infection will delay me no end, and I had already lost so much time as it was. Regaining stability, I enter the house, now driven by curiosity to find what needed to be protected to such a great extent. I search everywhere, behind every ornament, every drawer and cabinet, through the dining room with its elaborate furniture, wallpaper of exotic origin, and objects all associated with the stars amongst the heavens, telescopes, and the like. The living room, with leisure, pronounced in alcoholic beverages, sitting atop a large desk, almost as a private bar. The walls, a brown and white mix, carpeted floor with patterns of wear, detailing the residents' pathways, and varying bedrooms, each with their own persona, well-furnished and stately, with intricate study areas and small cabinets to hide every last document. Still nothing. I grow tiresome and take rest in a reddened leather chair, facing the front door, only to begin to falter to my injuries. Upon coaxing myself awake, I notice a painting unlike all the others, with different coloration and style, reminiscent of early man, and upon closer inspection, I notice one of the figures pointing out at the painting toward the study room. Foolishly, I pursue, as if a riddle, and to my surprise, there is another just like it, but portraying a bear with its head missing from its cadaver. A vulgar painting indeed. I search for the head of the beast on the wall and attempt to look through its eyes, but all I can gather is the front entrance. Unless... I attempt to remove the head and notice it to be fastened to the left side, opening as a door mechanism. I pull to my left, and behind the head lies a safe with a combination of sorts. I had dealt with several of these models previous during my time with the outcasts, and know exactly what to do, as I draw my stethoscope from my pocket and begin to listen to the guardians inside, each one ticking and locking once in position as cannon fire upon the deck of a ship. After several rotations, it opens with great ease and reveals a tube of paper with a seal bearing the mark of the East India Trading Company. Upon its removal, I see the blueprints for an engine-like mechanism of the steam generation and fuel based on wood, much like that of locomotives, but designed for a ship. The architecture is fascinating, and calculations extraordinary, as I find myself lost in their complexity. I reseal the tube and place it back, concealing my intentions from Mr. Sedgwick. Closing the safe and resetting the combination, I check for my gloves, and to my relief they are still present, hiding all fingerprints from his eyes. With the head rearranged and the removal of my tools from his home, 
I take my leave once more, pondering on why a man who professed to want nothing more to do with the East India Trading Company would suddenly wish to try again as soon as his partner was dead. Despite this, Mr. Sedgwick now had motive, and I had the evidence to convict him. But before I would jump to conclusions, the others would need to be exonerated. As I leave, I administer a solution into the hound's blood to bring him back into consciousness, placing him in the living room and relocking the rear door, erasing all which had happened. Favor was on my side, for I may have been attacked, but by one who was mute, and that was a huge relief on my part. The question on my mind now was how did Mr. Sedgwick obtain that tube if it was in Angus' possession? A card game? Or a more sinister means? Either way, it would require more detective work, a process which I was beginning to grow accustomed to. I glance upon the calendar and record details of Sedgwick's whereabouts, for now had come the time to reveal the truth, one way or the other. Upon tailing him, Mr. Sedgwick finds himself in a carriage of black and brown, with silver bracing. Familiar? Driver, take me to London's Green Park and hurry. My lady-in-waiting will not wait forever. Of course, sir. Fair in advance. Don't be absurd, peasant. Just get me to the park now. Very well, sir. Gas begins to fill the carriage with a potent sleep-inducing agent. Chloroform, to be precise. And all my raven can state is... You should have paid your fare, sir. Yeah. As the carriage trundles through the streets, bringing him to my asylum, his unconscious body, now a puppet to do with as I please, Mr. Sedgwick awakens, barely able to raise his head, surrounded by ravens, all cloaked with plague doctor masks and robes of black, hiding their identities from his prying eyes. A state of panic befalls him, and I utter to break the silence. Mr. Sedgwick, you've hidden the truth in days past, but today I offer you the choice to tell the events as they were, and survive, or the opposite. Who are you? I am Scarcrow, judge, jury, and executioner. Please, let me go. I'll tell you everything, I swear. He struggles to move, shackled to the chair I had placed him in. You are now part of an experiment which I hope you will find most useful. By now, you are feeling pain in your back and arms, amongst other areas, yes? Yes. That is because you are sat on the Judas chair. With over 1,500 spikes being passed into your flesh, don't worry. It isn't fatal, but enough. And the tightness of chest area? It's somewhat hard to breathe. That is because you are wearing a corset, lined with timed explosives. Dear God! Now, do not take his name in vain, Mr. Sedgwick. So long as you cooperate, you will survive. If not... Yes, yes. What do you want to know? You have five minutes to make a choice. Tell me a confession of your involvement with Angus Hart, the night of his murder, and any information you may feel is relevant toward the phonograph in front of you. Or... Remain silent for five minutes, in which case the corset will explode, and as in the case of your confession, you too will be lost to the four winds. All right, I'll tell you everything. Just get this off. I'm afraid it doesn't work that way, Mr. Sedgwick. Better start talking. Clock is ticking. All right, I was partners with Angus in a steel refinery, which he acquired for Mrs. Amos. 
After divorcing his wife, he lost all the money, and the steel refinery is all but bankrupt. Um, oh yes, I and Angus both decided to partner with the East India Trading Company to gain financial stability once more. And... <laughs> but he decided against it, saying that we should sell the blueprint to them. It would clear our debts we owed. What else? Oh, and I thought of selling it myself to Mr. Biggs. He's a representative, which was there that night also, but he wouldn't buy it. Instead, he tried to procure it via other means. I caught wind of this and made a safe which was uncrackable. That kept the dirty thief out. Is that all? Yes, now please let me go. I've given you what you ask. Please. My ravens tightened his shackles, forcing the spikes deeper into his already impaled flesh. <laughs> you vile little wretch! Release me at once! You are wasting time, Mr. Sedgwick. Now, what is your relationship to the other guests, apart from Angus and Biggs? Amos, you mean? We have mutual respect for one another, I suppose. One minute remains, Mr. Sedgwick. All right, damn you! We've been seeing more of each other lately and have grown close. Not to her husband's knowledge, I assure you. Now, for heaven's sake, let me go! Very well, Mr. Sedgwick. You have survived. Congratulations. As I place the phonograph to his left and inject him with a mild sedative, the clocks tick their last and trigger the false explosives, once again proving fear is the greatest tool in my arsenal. Take him home. Leave no evidence behind as to where you originated. Understand? Yes, Godcrack. Excellent. As my ravens carry out the dark deed I have requested, I remove the mask and store Sedgwick's confession in a double helix of metal holding prior confessions from times past. My attire reverts, and I adjust myself in preparation for the consequences of what had transpired. I begin to walk through the parks of London, with hedgerows of green and fountains surrounding, their sprays dousing the nearby flora in immersion and creating miniaturized fluorescence in the air. Upon settling, I witness a dragonfly with external colors, the likes of which I had never witnessed before, hovering just above the water's surface, and as I look into the water, it darts across my reflection, causing ripples to distort me, showing the same envisions as before, with one side as the doctor, and the other as the mask. How much longer could I hide this secret from the world? How much longer could I keep it from those who I trusted? For now, it was all I had to distance myself from them, and keep them from harm. That was worth holding, perhaps until death. I look through the hedgerow and witness a congress of women, all discussing their position in society, with vocalization of uproar and change, leading to a world which saw a woman with the right to vote in elections. <laughs> what times they would be. Everyone equal amongst others, if only such a world was possible. But life certainly did not stem these visionaries. To them, I felt a debt of gratitude, for the world had yet to change. Men were happy with how it was, but in order for progression to occur, sometimes it takes someone who is out of normality to question and invoke change, so we all could move forward with it. Slowly I move toward them, inspired by their rhetoric, and upon a sudden, find myself recognizing one of the voices to be that of Nightshade. I remain hidden, wondering what her involvement may be, but somewhat proud of her expenditure of life. 
to greater causes than that she had received. However, before I can reveal myself to her, Mr. Sedgwick appears from behind me, and we stare now in confrontation. He begins to run, and I after him, his hellhound no longer here to save him this time. Although I am but a feeble doctor, so in that sense we are both at a disadvantage. He attempts to shake my presence within the hedgerow, darting back and forth in an attempt to throw me off balance, to no avail. I pursue, and am within reaching distance, only for me to halt before colliding with a mother and her newly born infant, as though planned by Sedgwick to avoid capture. Containing my frustration, I find myself apologizing to the mother, who was shocked and distraught at the thought of her baby being lost to the surroundings. She states, Why don't you look where you're going in future, you fool? You may have hurt my baby. I close my eyes and swallow my darkness, only to reply, I am dreadfully sorry, madam. I was pursuing a suspect in a murder investigation. I sincerely apologize. That is quite right, doctor, but isn't that a police constable's duty? Perhaps you should stick to what you know, lest you make any further mistakes. And with that I turn away, walking toward the fountain once more, realizing that Sedgwick had escaped, and the element of surprise I thought I had went with him. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we discuss the chapter that's just been read to you and the inspirations behind the formation of the chapter, so how it came to be. So getting started, in the earlier part of the chapter, there's an intense scene which involves Dr. Lantern and an exchange with a dog. And you'll notice that the features described of the dog can either assign it to an Alsatian or a German Shepherd. Now, this is more along the lines of a German Shepherd because we used to own a German Shepherd and the features were sort of more to mind regarding that particular characterization. I mean, the nature of our dog couldn't be any more different than what is described in the novel, but I just felt it was a good way to sort of incorporate and immortalize our former pet. But she was very placid, very placid dog. The only bit of intensity about her behavior would be when you come in and she might run towards you and sort of jump up and want to lick your face. That was pretty much the only intensity of her behavior. But as we were writing Scarcrow, she'd been gone for a couple of years. So we felt that just immortalizing the characterizations, just describing her characteristics, sort of kept her alive in a way. The second point is that we see once Dr. Lantern enters the house of Mr. Sedgwick via alternative means, he comes across a series of riddles in the sense that there's a load of paintings. Now, one painting is very primitive in the sense that it looks like it was painted by early man if you've seen cave paintings you'll notice that they're quite basic drawings they're like stick figures you know finger paintings the majority of them and appears like it's pointing toward the study room and then when dr lantern goes into the study room he finds another painting similar to it but it's a bear without a head and that then triggers him to search the wall of mr sedgwick's home for the various trophies that he's brought back on his hunting exploits from across the empire to find the head of the bear, which he then discovers the safe behind. Now, this seems like a very elaborate series of riddles, which seems to be in plain sight. And this has taken inspiration from several different novels, one of which is the Fantastic Five series and also Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, where there's like intricate riddles or elaborate proceedings hidden in plain sight or plain items found around particular areas. But also it draws inspiration from many a Scooby-Doo episode. Obviously, as I was growing up, Scooby-Doo was like 
the main program to watch before you went to school. And of course, in the older episodes, there were more sort of riddles within those cases. You would have uh, mummy caskets that would open up into secret tunnel systems. You would have grandfather clocks, which did the same. You would have walls hidden behind uh, a bookshelf. When you pulled a particular book from the shelf, it sort of pulled a lever, which then opened that bookshelf to reveal, again, a hidden passageway or a hidden staircase. It's just drawing on those inspirations to make the story more interesting. It adds sort of a mystique to it. The third point is the mention toward the steam engine plans, or the blueprints then, found in Mr. Sedgwick's safe. Steam engines had already been designed for locomotives, but toward the end of the Victorian era, going into the Edwardian era, ships were now starting to become more mechanised. They were starting to have these steam-driven engines, as opposed to the former ways of just having a sail. This, of course, was sought after by many a business venture, such as the East India Trading Company, because not only did it mean that you could get journeys done in half the time, but also the prospects of the empire, the prospects of Britain as a world superpower, the prospects of trade, the prospects of war. Everyone wanted to get their hands on blueprints such as this because it would give them that financial and that military edge moving forward into the future. And there's also a reference toward William Murdoch. Now, for those of you who, like me, you enjoy Murdoch Mysteries you'll recognise the name, but William Murdoch was actually a real inventor in Victorian England, and he was responsible for the introduction of street lighting in Victorian London. Whether that's gas or electric, I'm not too sure, but he is the inventor best associated with incorporating that. So just a little fun bit of trivia there. The fourth point is another reference to a song. This is another Killswitch song, just to re-emphasise the point that Killswitch and Gage are my favourite band, where... Dr. Lantern mentions, I utter to break the silence. Now, Break the Silence is one of my favourite songs by Killswitch Engage because the lyrics are just so meaningful. So it found its way into this book respectively, as it does. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, we love to have shout outs to various different films and music and games, etc. And the final point is a reference to film franchise in the sense that Scarcrow mentions this line. You are to become part of an experiment, which I hope you will find useful. Now, this is my way of rewording the line that is most iconic with Jigsaw from the Saw franchise, where the person will wake up inside the trap and you'll have Jigsaw then iconically turn around and say, Hello, whoever. I want to play a little game. So it's just sort of rewording that, just to sort of re-emphasize the point that the character of Scarcrow and his various different methods are inspired by the Saw franchise, but not to go as far as actually killing the person, but to invoke fear enough into them so as he can obtain a confession. Okay, that about wraps it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. This is the section of the podcast where... We give tips of the trade to those of you who are aspiring authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. So today we're going to cover lasting first impressions, namely how to write a first line which is designed to draw your reader into the rest of your novel. It will set the tone for the rest of the novel. Now what you want to do when you're starting any novel, 
writing your first page is you want to think about the main point that your story is trying to make in the first place. Whether it's the scene you're trying to set, whether it's the backdrop, whether it's the political and social issues you're trying to drive forward, whatever these things are, try to write a first line which not only captivates your audience, but it also gives a slight teaser almost of what the book is all about, in a sense. So I've got a few examples from my own personal collection of books here, just to give you sort of an idea. So this one's taken from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and it says, No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. Now that, straight off, you think, well, what's he talking about? Who's he referring to? You know, it it draws you in. It makes you want to continue reading. You know, who is man being observed by? Who are these mortal intelligences that are better? It's almost like it, it asks a question. Another example is Peter Benchley's Jaws, where it says, the great fish moved slowly through the night water, propelled by short sweeps of its crescent tail. Well, what's he describing? The great fish. What does that tell of? In what relevance does that have to the story? You know, so it's, it's almost like it's asking a question of you, but it's giving enough to the reader to sort of lay the foundations for the story itself. And the last example is Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, where he mentions the late 20th century has witnessed a scientific gold rush of astonishing proportions. The headlong and furious haste to commercialize genetic engineering. So in that sense, he's laying down the social aspects of the novel. He's telling you what time period, just as H.G. Wells does, that it's set in, and also what the backdrop of the story is. So as we can see by these three examples, just taking these three examples, what you want to do in the first lines of your novel is set the tone of the story. Now, it doesn't have to be as long-winded as these three examples. Some books that are world-renowned or world bestsellers have one word as their opening line. Some of them can be dramatic. Like, for instance, you might start a book with they stood facing their firing squad. You know, something like that. Something that's vague. Something that makes the reader want to continue. You know, it's like, oh, why are they facing a firing squad? You know, it, it asks them a question. It's almost like it's piquing their interests. Because what you have to remember is when you're writing your story, of course, you you normally have a front cover which captures the reader's attention, first of all. But once they're past the front cover, unless you have illustrations, it's just writing. So that first initial sentence is going to be the one thing that sticks with them. And if that first sentence draws them in to the point where they want to read the rest, that's kind of the effect that you're going for when you're writing. You know, hence the reason why in this particular novel, Scarcrow, it starts off way back in episode one of the second season, if you want to go back and just refresh your memory, it starts off with the judge passing sentence over Dr. Lantern. It's a past flashback, but it's gripping enough that the person just coming into the story is wondering what's going on. Why is this person being tried? What's the charges? Who's charging them? You know, it begs the question and it almost entices the reader to keep going forward. You know, they want the answers to these questions. So it draws them in. And that's the effect you want to create with your first line as well. Okay, that about wraps up for this section. And that about does it for episode seven. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you're enjoying this season as much as we are. 
and hopefully you've got everything out of it that you wish to take from it. Of course, we'll introduce all the links to the relevant sources of information that have been mentioned throughout this chapter and throughout this episode so that you have access to that. And right now, I just want to take an opportunity to promote a project committed by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young. Uh, It's a painting and mural company. Now, we've been promoting this all the way through the season. We're just going to carry that on until the very end of this season. It's a project known as Top Dog Studios. So if you or anyone you know is interested in having a professional brand represented by a painting and mural design committed by a professional artist and graphic designer, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios' website. That's www.topdogstudios.co.uk And there you'll find sections where you can fill in your contact information. You can tell Callum a little bit about your project. You can tell him what your budget is and the time parameters in which you want the project completed within. Be sure to pop him a line if you're interested in having your business's brand represented by a professional artist. And I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Once again, guys, thank you very much. And hopefully, as I've said, you've enjoyed this season as much as we enjoy making them for you. I wish you well in whatever you're doing for the rest of the day. Go out and smash it. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you next time.